I, uh, I want to start this morning with a question. And I've been thinking about this question all week. And the question is this. What if the resurrection never happened? For many skeptics, some probably even in this room, it didn't. It didn't happen. It's folklore. It's, it's fiction. It's, it's, it's Dumbledore theology. Like just magical nonsense. And if Jesus is actually still dead and buried somewhere in Palestine, well, then his resurrection and his influence and his words have no more claim over you or over me than that of Socrates, uh, Lincoln, Gandhi, Dr. Phil. Actually, in every respect, the Bible, the church would be meaningless. And that's so real, what I just said, that the New Testament says so itself. The New Testament says if the resurrection is a hoax or gobbledygook, then all of this is futile. We might as well just believe in rabbits which lay colorful eggs in our yard. Like that's how ridiculous the Bible says it would be if the resurrection is, is a farcity. So, but what I love even more and I want to show us today is the Bible actually exposes this what if question as a reality. So if you look at your Bibles, if you had John chapter, uh, John chapter 20 open before you, if not, it'll be on the screen. But the Bible shows us this reality, this what if. Verse 1 in John chapter 20 in the New Testament says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. This not only informs us the physical state of the moment, early in the dark, a sunless morning, but John, the author, the poet, also wants us to feel a, a, an emotional, a spiritual darkness. It's a different type of mourning and grief. So from Friday to Sunday, before the sun arose, Christ lay dead, and we get to actually see what our hearts and our dispositions would be through the disciples if there was no resurrection. Another part of this gospel shows that the disciples were hiding in fear. Mary, who's already been mentioned, it says she's weeping on top, like multiple, multiple times. Weeping, weeper, weeping all the time. And if you harmonize the gospels, you see that a majority of the closest followers of Jesus put in their, their two-week notice. They quit. It says they went back. Like it was some sort of failed summer internship program. So the question, what if the resurrection ever happened? Well, if we look just from those little moments, we see it's fear, it's hiding, it's weeping, it's grief, it's hopelessness, it's lacking in purpose. All of that would be present. Now see, John the author, an actual eyewitness, wants his readers, wants you and I to see and to know that this was surely a dark time. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, then you'll notice that John stands out. He's a black sheep of sorts. Every other gospel starts out with very earthliness. They start out in dirt. Every other gospel starts out in bloodlines. It starts out in history, but not John. John, sought to, when he sought to basically publish his diary, diary, you know, his diary entries on his journey with Jesus, some 60 years after the fact, John desired his audience to know that Jesus was no common man. John starts out in the cosmos and the beyond. This is what he penned in the very first verse of his gospel. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now look at this. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A light shines in the fear, hiding, weeping, grief. No doubt this is what Mary carries with her on that dark morning as she approaches this tomb. And as she approaches this tomb, it's very like horror movie-esque. She's coming in the misty morning and there's this graveyard and there's an open casket. It is most definitely a terrifying moment and she's triggered. She's alarmed, she freaks out. And what does she do? She would have done what I would have done and she got the heck out of Dodge. She bolts. Mary is out. She goes, mm-mm, I ain't snooping. And she gets out of there. She doesn't search around an open grave, smart woman. And then she goes and grabs two disciples, one being Peter, the other one being John, the very author of this gospel. But John, if you guys notice, gave himself a cute little nickname. Okay, watch it. Look at verse two. So Mary ran and went to Simon Peter, and then John does, and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken my Lord. If that wasn't enough, John also writes, so Peter went out with the other disciple and they're going towards the tomb. But look at what John does, a little jab. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Can you picturing John write this by candlelight going, and Peter ate all of my dust? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Done. (laughs) They arrive at the stone casket And John apparently arrives first and he's standing outside of it and he's maintaining his composure and he's reflective. There's a lot of respect at a cemetery, a lot of respect, he's restrained. But then what does Peter do? Peter barrels right past him. He tags him on the shoulder and says, tag your it. And he jumps and he bulldozes into the tomb. Peter bulldozes into the tomb. Is he excited? Is he confused? Is he angry? Is he freaking out? And do you know what they found in that tomb? Darkness. They found darkness. They just booked it there. Maybe the last shred of hope, and they get there, and it's darkness. It's the smell of death. It's Christ's old grave linens, nicely folded, by the way, which makes me think Jesus was extremely OCD. Like he's about to walk out, he's like, oh gosh. Like he's, I gotta do this. What they didn't find, what they didn't find was a crime scene. They didn't find clues to a grave robbery and they did not find life. Theologian John Stott contrasts their discovery to that of a man finding a uh, discarded chrysalis from which the butterfly has emerged. And because of that, we get to read some of the most depressing words in all of this gospel. Look at verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Here it is. Then the disciples went back to their homes. They left emptied of their expectation. They left devoid of hope. They left thinking we backed the wrong horse. They left thinking game over. You see, the death of Jesus for them was the death of hope. I think this is a feeling that we as Angelinos probably all know too well. 
not that we are hopeless people. Angelinos are not hopeless. We are bubbling over with hope. No, 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 no. What we know the feeling of is having high hopes and then to have it crippled in front of us before our very eyes. Many times I've had people who've told me over my years here in Los Angeles that, that, that you know, I, sh- I, I, I should be, the, the feeling of receiving an Oscar rather than delivering an Oscar Mayer wiener to a table or whatever, like the feelings of, I should be married now, not being set up by blind dates with my friends or the feelings of, I should be happier, but fear and hiding and weeping and grief and darkness. We can empathize, Angelinos, with these disciples who, who rather than staying or rather than searching, they got their ball and they went home. You see, with that, I wonder if an unresurrected Jesus, I wonder if a corpse or a lifeless Jesus, as much as weeping or fear it may produce, is still actually more desirable. Let me illustrate. There's a, um, a crazy book called Beneath the Neon. If anybody's read it, Beneath the Neon. It's a nonfiction account of one man's journey into the far-stretching tunnels beneath the Las Vegas Strip. It's an entire world beneath the Strip. And he ventured into there and he found upwards of 700 homeless men and women living day in and day out in perpetual darkness. They were permanently nocturnal. And as many times as the Nevada government has tried to help these people and get them out of there and get them in the housing, every time the book says they refuse, they refuse, they refuse. Why? Because they admit in this book that their darkness was far easier to digest, to live with, and to accept. Jesus himself has talked about that very reality in a more spiritual sense before in this same gospel. Jesus has said these words, I'll say it very quickly, but he has said light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light for fear of being exposed. A corpse is easier to to, to digest. It's easier to believe, it's easier to accept, but a bodily, living, breathing, fleshly, white-boned resurrection Jesus makes him dangerous. It makes Jesus dangerous because it exposes. Because it means I can no longer pick and choose from any of his extravagant claims. It means I can no longer be the captain of my own ship. It means that there's decisions to be made. It means that there's a line in the sands. It means that Jesus is on the loose. It means he might speak to me, ask of me, change me. Author Frederick Beekner says Easter means we can never nail him down, not even if the nails we use are real and the thing we nail him to is a cross. So, of course, Peter and John and Mary don't understand any of this. And it's here in this moment of the story we have something beautiful and tragic. And in John's gospel alone, it records that Mary lingers. Mary is the only one in this entire gospel is to linger to mourn. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. This is the first time Mary has looked in. She's weeping and she's weeping some more, which is a total, it's totally understandable from what she's seen. 
And John wants every reader to know how much she she loved him. And then this is happening. This begins to happen. Angels appear. Not to Peter, not to others, but to this woman. And Mary is apparently so emo because the miraculous, the supernatural angel themselves can't even detour her fragile state. Every other person in the Bible who sees an angel totally freaks out. Mary sees an angel and it's like she's talking to her third cousin. Oh, hey, she's totally not bothered by it. Look at verse 13. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? What's going on? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord. Now we don't have time to do a full expose on angel or angelology, but excitingly enough, as we start the book of Hebrews next week, in just a couple weeks, we're going to be getting into a full-blown understanding of angels. So look forward to that. But these angels can't understand why anybody would be weeping on Easter. <laughs> what do you even do? Why are you weeping? They don't get it. From the angel's perspective, nothing seems more bizarre than tears at this moment. And as the angels are flabbergasted and Mary's, you know, having a party and she's crying if she wants to, they're all interrupted by a gardener. They're interrupted by the gardener, or so it seems. Because Mary must have swollen eyes and she's wiping her eyes and she's in a dark tomb and she's looking and she sees the silhouette. She's like, oh, the gardener's bothering me. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to, her, said to her, woman, why are you weeping? But he adds this question, whom are you seeking? Who is it that you are looking for? The other gospels ask the question, why are you looking for the living among the dead? So to the angels and to Jesus, it's like they're looking for blue whales in the desert. Wait, what are you, why are you looking? You're looking here? Whom are you seeking? What an incredibly poignant Easter Sunday morning question. Whom are you seeking? This whole time, I believe that Mary has been looking for the wrong Jesus. Mary is looking for a dead Jesus. And I wonder for some of us here now, for those who are either tempted or already have given up on Jesus and faith, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if the problem was that you were looking for the wrong Jesus. Some looking for repairman Jesus. Fix this, clean that, fix it up here, put something there, I don't know, carpentry talk, measure the board thing. Or some of us here looking for maybe this like bubbles and daisies and buckets full of puppies, Jesus. Or some of you looking for a legalistic, earn it, do it, be good, religion driving Jesus. Or some here like Mary looking for a too small Jesus. Oh, Jesus can't do that. Mary at this moment then unleashes and she starts to freak out on this gardener. But we caught that she's, she's upset. Gardener, if you took him, if you hid him, if you have him, so help me. And in this rash mama bear moment, Mary's entire world changes. And we read what's considered, this has been called the shortest sermon in the entire Bible. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, oh, Mary, I was thinking this week names are 
a really fascinating aspect of our humanity, are they not? It's something that we receive at birth, unless you're ladybird or something. It's given to me by me, like unless you're like, but receiving our name is part of the process of being fully born. If you're a parent, then you know you can't even leave the hospital without birth certificate stuff and naming your child. We couldn't even leave the hospital in Arizona. No, name your kid. No, name your kid. All right. <laughs> it's at our very birth that we are not numbered. We are not labeled like a clump of cells. We're not even thrown into classification of animals. We are named. Hence, anytime our names are not used, like, hey boy, or my entire life, every class I was ever in, when they took roll, is Cassie here? It's Casey, Mr. Offenhauser. Cassie it is. All right. (laughs) It's just so impersonal. If our names are not used, we're diminished to our capacity or our abilities or our looks, and it can just be dehumanizing. Mary would have known all of this too well. Mary lives in a culture and an economy where the dignity of a woman was trampled upon. Women in her day were often treated like animals which only adds very real and very strong verification of a resurrection truth for any skeptics here. Because women were often, often considered unreliable witnesses. So if the, if the disciples wanted to concoct a story designed to convince everybody to join their cult called Christianity, they would not have chosen women as viable messengers. Thus, the only historical plausible answer to why women are in this account at all is this. It must have happened. Moreover, if we read the Bible accounts accurately and carefully, what we should see is not male domination following Jesus, but faithful, strong, loyal women at every stage of Jesus' ministry. Dr. Luke in his account reports this. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene. Also, she's not only there, she has a nickname. Which implies when Jesus gives the nicknames, that means you're close. Few people had nicknames with Jesus. John decided to give himself one as well. (laughs) Few people had nicknames. Hers was Tower. Magdalene means Tower. So either she was tall or she was regal or she was stately or she was strong. But then we also see verse two, from whom seven demons had gone out from Mary and then and Joanna and Susanna and many others were with Jesus. Now, even though Mary was a prominent female disciple, we know that because her name shows first in the list, she herself also has unwarranted and odd rumors. I wouldn't be surprised if people came this morning thinking that Mary either was a prostitute, that's a very common belief, or that she was married or Jesus' a secret girlfriend. It's another popular belief. I think a Joaquin Phoenix movie is coming out with that, right? That's weird. And we have zero evidence pointing to any of this. Truthfully, all we have of her dark past is she was demon-possessed. Not by one demon, two, three, or even five, but by seven demons. And so for Jesus to cry out her name, Mary. It's one of the few times in any of the Gospels where Jesus addresses somebody by name. For Jesus to cry out her name from beyond the tomb, he is remaking her world. 
She wants to, she, he wants her to, to, to leave the darkness, to literally step out of this garden grave. And I hope some of us are picking up on these like undercurrents of what John is doing. Where in Genesis, we have the first garden and man is a gardener who committed treason. The Bible calls it sin. Thus death was initiated. But here we have this gardener and this gardener, this gardener, this gardener, Jesus, who banishes death. John is so cosmic and he's this incredible story master. And if you really want to get nuts, you can talk about the two angels that guarded the, the Eden and the two angels in the tomb, or we could talk about how man blamed woman for death, but yet here we have God, Jesus telling woman to go tell man about life. I mean, it's so poetic what John is doing. But in all this moment, the formality of woman and sir, if you noticed, is broken. It's broken. There's no more women. There's no more sir. There's no more gardeners. No more just angels. It's Mary. Intimacy is shared. Friends, you are witnessing one of the most tenderest moments in all of Christian history. And what I love is Jesus could have said anything in this moment. I'm alive. Here's Johnny. Boo. Let's get Chipotle. Like he could have said anything. But he decides to do what? He decides to expose her. He brings her into the light. He does not recognize her as a dog, as a marginalized, or somebody who was once possessed. He, he treats her as a person to be known. In this moment, Mary is known and it changes her. Kevin shared his story. That night, he was known and it changed him. Does it or could it change you? It's fascinating to think about. I don't know if you've ever done this with, as a Christian or as somebody who's not a Christian, if you've ever done this, but if you ever think about what kind of evidence individuals would need in order to believe in Jesus Christ as, a resurrected, as the resurrected son of God. Even if you're here and you're, and you're not a Christian, have you ever thought like, what would I actually need to believe in this? You've ever thought that yourself? Because no matter what you would say, I need scientific Empirical this, historical that, I need Jesus to come up and punch me in the face, whatever it could possibly be. There were men and women like Mary then and there who needed the same level of convincing. And what's encouraging is, for me at least, at some point, they got it. They got it. At some point, they were assured and devoted their life to Christ and his causes whether that be the infamous Doubting Thomas who needs to touch Jesus and he needs proof or other people who need history. But I would have to, I would have to say that Mary's need of evidence is the strongest because what she needed was something personal. Showing us, yes, Easter changed the world though, but not in the way that we might've hoped for. Because let's face it, let's be honest, Racism still pollutes our streets. Teachers and children are in danger within their schools. Predators still prowl in the workplace. Divorces are not going to slow down. And we're all going to be at one time or another rejected, abandoned, hurt, abused, lied to. So even with the resurrection, Casey, there is still fear, weeping, grief. I'm, again, I... All week, I've just been sitting with the fact to answer this, to look at this, the needs that these people needed, the need that Mary had, I think it's found in the understated nature of this history-altering moment. 
You guys notice this? Here we are saying, this is the biggest day in Christendom. And yet, there's no bright star, there's no angelic chorus going on, there's no trumpets, there's no parade, there's no Christmas narrative of kings bringing like sweet old gifts. The resurrected Jesus comes in the common, in the mundane, in the ordinary moments of our unremarkable Mondays. Flip through the gospel accounts to see the resurrected Jesus. And you're going to see him just come up at a private dinner. You're going to see him come up to people who are walking on a private road. You're going to see him on a private lake with some fishermen. And you're going to see him even just meet and find a woman who's weeping in a garden. Friends, this is the gospel of John for you. The account doesn't start out, the account does start out, excuse me, further than the gospels, further than time. And its ending chapters end intimately. They end personally. That's what will change us. I could have given Kevin that night all the empirical evidence he needed to believe, an algorithm, a recipe. It would not have done one iota of good. When God becomes personal, like he does here with Mary, that's what changes somebody. That's her needed evidence. And Christ's resurrection for the hope of a future, as it's been said that the worst things are never the end things or the last things, because of the future hope, it gives us a present hope and an inexpressible joy. A chance to be known. And this good news of the risen Lord is a truth so transcendent, yet a God who can be known and us who can know. So I'm just going to say this and we're going to wrap it up. If you can take anything away from this morning, may it be in the fact that you and I are known, are known by the living God. 1 Corinthians 8 says, but if anyone loves God, they are known by God. Maybe for some of us here, that is the danger factor, the exposed factor, where darkness is more comforting. I don't move. I think many of us would rather be known for something rather than known by someone. But what we need is and what we desire is to be known completely and still loved completely. A pastor in Manhattan has this all-encompassing quote, and I just, I had to read it. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. But to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and it fortifies, us, it fortifies any difficulty life can throw at us. Or other words, you could say a present hope. I will just confess to you this morning as an extremely imperfect man, an imperfect Bible teacher, that I long to be known and still loved by this church, by my family. So friends leaving this place, I want it to be certain in our gut that God takes note of you. God longs to hear your voice in the morning. God hangs your artwork on the fridge. God shows your picture in his wallet to coworkers. Nothing distracts him from you. You are never out of his mind. Puritan theology says to be known by God is the full and final comfort of a believer. And from this knowing, we then know him. Verse 16, and Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabbi, Mary calling Jesus rabbi means Jesus is almost this teacher. You have taught me faith and hope and love and life. 
And what's beautiful is Mary's moment is everybody's moment. Mary's story is everybody's story. If Jesus chose a woman with a a serious emotional um, and spiritual problems, he didn't choose some random insider. He didn't choose one of his leaders, not a paid employee, not an angel. He calls her and he tells her to go, making her the first preacher, the first evangelist to go and speak of the resurrected Lord. Thank heavens salvation is not based on pedigree or Mary Magdalene or any of us would have been in this list. Thank heavens it's not based on a moral achievements or even raw talent or I would nowhere be found near this. Christ appears to the desperate in desperate moments and by knowing them gives them a future hope which produces an inexpressible present joy. So like I said, I end with the story of Easter is the single greatest story that this world has ever known. It's what every other story wishes it could be. It's a true story that truly changes us. And again, like I said, what changes us isn't an algorithm or some sort of scientific data. It's the unshakable assurance that there's a God who knows us and still loves us. Do you, for those here who doubt, have boldness to believe this fully today, Christian or not? Do you have the heart to follow Christ supremely? You were not here by accident. So again, I end with a slightly different question than I started with. And what I encourage both Christians and those who aren't here to consider, take these next few moments as we go into a time of response and consider what could be and what is true about my life if every detail of the resurrection is real. Let me pray for us.